Um, hey, thank you so much for joining us online, being flexible here. Uh, my name is Dan, if, if I haven't met you, and I'm assuming I haven't met a lot of you out there. Uh, hopefully uh, you, you're tuning in and you haven't tuned in before, but thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks for setting apart this time, church family, to, to gather together, even though we're kind of spread out through the community right now. And, and like we said in an email, we're just going to kind of play it week by week and uh, see what God's plan is for us. But we're so thankful the church is not a building, it's a people, and we all share the same spirit and he unites us wherever we're at. So thanks for being with us. Um, before uh, we get into the, the regular sermon here, as we look at the book of Ephesians, uh, I'd like to take about 10 minutes just to share some thoughts, some reflections about what we're going through, about this current coronavirus situation. Three thoughts. First, don't let worry overrun your heart because Jesus is in control. Don't let worry overrun your heart, but trust that Jesus is in control. In John 14, 1, Jesus told his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, the Father, and believe also in me. And then before Jesus ascended to heaven, Matthew 28, 18 says that Jesus came and said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Trust God the Father. Trust also Jesus the Son. You know, there, there's nothing in this, this universe that God made that, that, that he's not in control of right now. He's the one holding all things together. Jesus is in complete control of us right now as we fly through space on a giant rock at 67,000 miles per hour. Okay, that might be a little more disconcerting than, than the coronavirus. And, you know, Jesus is also in complete control of every little detail in your life, and he cares about you. That's a really, really, really good thing, because God is good. He's good. And the coronavirus, you know, this crisis might make us a little bit anxious, but you know what? God's not sweating it. Uh, when we read the Gospels, one of the first things we take away is that Jesus has all power over all diseases and all sicknesses. Jesus healed all sorts of people instantly from their diseases when, whenever he willed to do so. And, and that wasn't just an ancient phenomenon. We've seen that time and time again in our own church family. And so in light of that, you know, let's, let's humbly come to the Lord in prayer, who is the great physician. Let's ask him to heal us if we are sick. And let's ask him to protect us if we aren't sick. And when we do that, when we pray to the Lord, we, we, we trust that the Lord knows best, that uh, we submit ourselves to his will because God's good plan for our lives is the one that's going to play out, and we trust that he has one. And we believe Romans 8.28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for, for those who are called according to his purpose. We, we believe Ephesians 1.11, that God is working out all things in heaven and on earth according to his good purpose. So don't be afraid, Christian, because you are in the hands of of the sovereign God who loves you. 
Second, keep this crisis in perspective. Keep this crisis in perspective. You know, there are certain daily practices that we would be wise to do to keep this situation in perspective because we need to remember that the coronavirus is not God. God is God, okay? So when you wake up in the morning, before you check your phone, before you go online, before you read the headlines, before you hear the world tell you everything you should be afraid of, well, you know what? Open God's word instead and remember that he's the one in control, not all those other voices. Read, read a psalm. Start, start working your way through one of the four gospels. You know, just read something from scripture and then ask God to show you how it points to God and his power and his faithfulness. He's got a perfect track record. And that's what we need to focus our thoughts on. Because this is the reality. This crisis is, this is a, while we take it seriously, it is a tiny blip on the timeline of eternity, right? God has already determined the end from the beginning. Psalm 139, 16 says this about God. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You can be confident of this, that God is going to keep you alive until that day that he's already appointed to end your time on earth. The coronavirus is not a threat to God's plan for your life. So trust God with your health. Trust God with, with your own life. Trust God with your family. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, death is already a conquered enemy for Christians. Okay? Death is now just the door that we will walk through to finally see and enjoy God in glory for the rest of eternity. Praise God that Jesus has done that for us. And third, I want to encourage you to make the most of this time, this kind of unique season that we're in. In Psalm 90, 12, the psalmist prays to God, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You see, when God helps us realize that our days on earth are numbered, it enables us to think more wisely about what kind of lives we want to live. Uh, one of the blessings of this coronavirus uh, crisis uh, is that God is teaching us to number our days. He's teaching us to number our days so that we can think more wisely about our lives on earth and about what's going to happen to us when we die. If the coronavirus has rattled your cages at all, that's a good thing. Has it, has it made you consider what will happen to you when your life on earth ends? Do you know today whether you really are truly at peace with God? Because if not, then, then my prayer for you is that the, the Lord Jesus would show you how awesome he is and how gracious he is towards sinful people. And I pray that God would show you how desperately you need to be at peace with him today. If you believe Jesus is God and that he died and that he rose again to conquer sin and death and then turn, change your mind about sin about the things that displease God and instead 
turn and put your faith in Jesus. You don't need me to get you right with God. You need Jesus to get you right with God. And so talk to the Lord because God the Father is the one who sent his son to die for you. Trust in him today and you will be saved. But maybe, you know, maybe you don't know what you believe about Jesus in the Bible and, and, and that's okay. Maybe you, um, maybe you want to investigate Jesus more yourself. Maybe you can't say, you know what, I have actually taken time to, to open scripture and, and read it and see what it says. Well, if you're there, you know, uh, that's a good thing because Jesus told his disciples to consider the cost before signing up to follow him. So if that describes you, then what are you doing this Sunday, today? This is a great time. After our time together, open a Bible. Go online. Go to esv.org. Maybe read the Gospel of John. Start reading it. Ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. You know, I know many people who have trusted in Jesus and seen him uh, with eyes of faith simply because they finally took time to open the Bible and to read his word. God's word is self-authenticating. God doesn't want you to live in panic right now. He doesn't want you to live in fear of the future. He doesn't want you to live in fear of death. What he wants for you is to turn to him and to know his awesome friendship and salvation firsthand. Because Jesus is the only real hope that any of us have, both in our living and in our dying. And for those of us who are Christians, uh, let's, let's use this unique time to turn our hearts to God, to turn our families to God, to his word, and to prayer, and to taking care of one another. Let's take care of the sick among us, and the elderly, and the lonely among us, and the poor in our midst. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus is in control. Keep this crisis in perspective and make the most of this time. And no, that's not my sermon yet. <laughs> that's a mini sermon. So let's move now to the sermon and the text for this morning, which is Ephesians 1. We'll start at verse 3. If you have a Bible with you, please, please turn there. This passage speaks a lot of good news to the situation that we are in right now. You know, over the past year or two, a trend that we've seen in our culture uh, that is on the rise is a trend of deconversion stories. And influential people who, who once claimed to follow Jesus are now publicly sharing why they no longer believe in Jesus and no longer follow him, at least, at least why they no longer believe in the Jesus of the Bible and no, no longer follow him. And these social influencers have, have chosen now to use their public platforms to tell these deconversion stories. And it's, it's been disturbing to many of us to hear deconversion stories from influential pastors and Christian authors and scholars and worship leaders and Christian musicians and songwriters and, and famous YouTube personalities. It's, it's rattled Many of us to hear that, that Christians who have had a great spiritual impact on us are saying now that they no longer believe in Jesus. And, and in many cases, they no longer believe in God at all. And for those of us who love Jesus, who love Jesus, 
And it's really sad to see people use their God-given platforms no longer to glorify Jesus, but to share why they believe Jesus isn't worthy of glory. And some of us might even be frightened by these deconversion stories because we might wonder, man, if that person lost their faith in Jesus, could I lose my faith too? So how should we think about these deconversion stories? Is it, is it really possible for a true Christian, a true believer in Jesus to unbelieve and then to lose his or her salvation? Can the Christian have any assurance in this life that he or she is truly at peace with God? Well, what you don't need is to hear my thoughts about this. What you and I need is to hear what God's truth is. And so... Um, as Christians, we believe that the Bible, that Scripture is God's Word. For many different we- reasons, we believe that it is what it, is, it says it is and what it has proven itself to be, the breathed-out Word of God. We believe that Scripture is true because the one who speaks these words is the way and the truth and the life. So here at at our church, at Cedar Home, we preach the Bible. We, we slowly go through a book of the Bible, line by line, because we want to hear from God, not from me. We, we want to seek to understand its historical context. We want to understand its applications for our lives. We want to ask God to use these verses in our lives to help us, and to help us love him, and to love others with every part of our lives. So if you have a Bible... Please turn again to Ephesians 1, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and open up another browser if you want, another browser window. You can go to esv.org, type in Ephesians 1, and you'll be right there with us. And the passage we're going to look at today is, it's going to remind us that every aspect of our peace with God is because of God's grace and power and not our own. So before we we read from this, I better open up too. And I bookmarked it. Uh, Let me me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this time that we have together. Thank you for giving us this day of life to, to hear from you, to hear from your word. I pray for us, God, that you would teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain hearts of wisdom. Holy Spirit, that you would not only inform our minds, but that you would shape our hearts that we would see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, that we would take joy in the salvation and the love that you offer us. Please uh, illuminate these, these words of, of Scripture today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Paul wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, In the first century A.D., around 62, 64 A.D., I believe, uh, he was under house arrest in Rome awaiting his trial. And he wrote to, uh, this letter is really what it is, to this church in Ephesus. That's why it's called to the Ephesians. And he wants them to remember some important things. So Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. So, uh, if you're new to our church, we've been looking at this, this passage, 3 to 14, uh, for like six or seven weeks now. And the reason we're looking at it all at one chunk, in one chunk is because in the original Greek, it's all one long sentence. And Paul has all these interconnected, interdependent thoughts. And so uh, the way that I summarize the big idea of this one long sentence is this. Praise God for loving us immensely by blessing us lavishly with his glorious grace through Jesus Christ. Praise God for loving us immensely by blessing us lavishly with his glorious grace through Jesus Christ. The entire tone of this passage is one of praise to God. It is to invoke worship in our hearts and thanksgiving to God for the love and the grace that he's shown us. In these verses, Paul describes many of the different aspects of God's love for his people. And here's what we've explored about God's love for us in the past five sermons, according to this passage. In love, God predestined us for salvation. In love, God adopts us as his beloved sons and daughters. In love, God redeemed us on the cross by ransoming us and by removing our sin. In love, God declares us holy and blameless, without blame before him. In love, God reconciles us to God so that we're no longer enemies with God, we're at peace with God. And in love, God will bring all things together under the headship of Christ. And now we're gonna explore what it means that in love, God seals us until the last day. We're gonna focus on verses 13 to 14 here, so let's read them again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. When that happened, when you heard and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So these words obviously were not written to everybody on planet Earth. These words are specifically written to those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And so Christians, 
Verse 13 says that at the moment when you heard the gospel of Jesus and believed or trusted in Jesus, God did something to you. What does it say he did to you? God sealed you. God made you born again through faith in the gospel and you were sealed with God the Holy Spirit. Now just to be clear, Scripture reveals that there is only one God who exists. The Lord is God, the Lord is one. And God exists eternally as three persons, as God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And so when we read about any one of those persons in this passage, when we talk about them today, we're talking about God, the Lord. So just to review here, the passage says that God not only predestined us, God only, not only ransomed us and forgave us, God not only declared us holy in his sight, God not only adopted us as his sons and daughters, God not only reconciled to himself, us to himself, but God also sealed us in Christ to secure these blessings for us until we meet Jesus face to face after this life. Now, what, what exactly does it mean here that the Holy Spirit seals Christians? Well, the word sealing in this verse refers to the way that authorities in the ancient world used to authenticate legal documents. A king or a notary uh, would wear a, a ring with his unique inscription on it. And after writing a document, he would put some wax on that document and then push his ring down into the wax to create a seal with his insignia on it. And that seal indicated that the document was authentic and that the promises in that document were legally binding. This is what God has done for us. This is what God has done to us. In Christ, we bear the seal of God. And in and we know that, you know, sealing documents for legal purposes, we can think of it this way. It's, you know, it's still practiced today. Often in our culture, it's, it's used uh, with embossments or stickers. Um, I remember when I applied to Denver Seminary, they required me to submit my transcript from college. And it couldn't just be a copy of my transcript. It had to come directly from the University of Wyoming. Go Pokes! And it had to be embossed with the university's official seal on it so that the seminary knew it was authentic. You guys, this is what God has done for us. God has sealed us with himself. And the Holy Spirit's seal upon the Christian signifies that he or she is legally owned by God, authenticated by God, and secured by God. The Christian is owned by God because through Jesus' death on the cross, God ransomed his people from sin. He bought them. And the currency that God spent to buy his people was his own holy blood that he shed on the cross. Through sacrificing himself for those who would trust in him, Jesus freed us <laughs> from the legal bondage we were in to sin and to Satan and to God's law. And now God owns us as his redeemed children. And the Holy Spirit's seal on us marks us now as God's forever possession. 
And the Christian then is, is also authenticated by God. Authenticated by God because the seal that is on the Christian is what? What is the seal? It is God himself. God is the seal. Or, or, or to put it negatively here, uh, we do not belong to God if we do not have his seal on us. The reason why verse 13 refers to the Holy Spirit as the promised Holy Spirit is because long before Jesus lived on earth in the flesh, God spoke through ancient prophets who wrote down that the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence would authenticate individuals as God's children. So for example, in the 5th century B.C., God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel, and he wrote this down. I will put my spirit within you. So who does it? God does it. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be, okay, and be careful to obey my rules. And after Jesus ascended to heaven hundreds of years later, uh, the, the Apostle Paul wrote about the authenticating presence of the Holy Spirit in believers in Romans 8 and 9. Paul writes, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the Christian is authenticated by God because the Christian has been sealed with God himself. That's great news. <laughs> and then also the Christian is secured by God. The Christian is secured by God because it is the indwelling Holy Spirit who sustains our faith in Jesus. God is the one who establishes us in Christ. God is the one who seals us with his spirit as a guarantee of our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 to 22 says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It is God who uh, has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And this, this is just a, a much needed breath of fresh air in the middle of all the, the chaos going around us. I mean, to know that whatever happens around me or to me, I'm secure in Christ because the Spirit of Christ is securing me. Wow. That God's got me and he's not gonna let me go. My one comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but that I was bought with blood and I belong to Christ alone. Wow, what great news is that? I remember reading a devotional by R.C. Sproul in which he wrote that the most important doctrine that was reestablished during the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of eternal assurance. It's the doctrine that Christians can know they are saved because the Holy Spirit has sealed them. This is the doctrine that the Christians must not and cannot trust in any of their own good works or in their prayers or in their church attending to save them. Instead, they must trust in Christ alone to save them. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is the only message in the world that says that you don't contribute anything to making yourself acceptable before God or to sustaining God's acceptance of you. Instead, the gospel says that your acceptance before God only comes through faith 
in Jesus Christ, because of God's grace, because of Jesus Christ who died to give you eternal acceptance with God. Now, this is not to say, of course, that as followers of Jesus, we, we don't seek to obey God and to do good works. Of course we do that. The Holy Spirit in us compels us to do that. But we don't do that to add to what Jesus accomplished on the cross in his death and in his resurrection. If we're seeking to add anything to the cross, then we're saying that what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient to save. Instead, we obey God, and it's our delight to make his name famous because he finished it for us. He sacrificed himself to save us from death and hell and to bring us into the kingdom of light, to give us eternal life for all eternity. And so we're glad to praise his name, and we want the whole world to know that God loves them and that they can know him through Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit's seal upon the Christian declares that he or she is owned by God, he or she is authenticated by God, and he or she is secured by God. Now let's move to the next verse. Ephesians 1, verse 14. The Holy Spirit, who has sealed believers and who now indwells, indwells believers, is further described as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is not merely the one who seals us. The Holy Spirit in us is himself the guarantee of our inheritance. And as our guarantee, the Holy Spirit in us is God's down payment, and he's also God's foretaste of future glory. He's a down payment, and he's also God's foretaste of future glory. So the Holy Spirit, um, it says here, well, let's, here in verse 14, uh, the word for guarantee refers to a down payment or earnest money. If you've ever bought a house, you had to put a down payment or maybe a bi another big purchase, you had to put a down payment. And it is the payment that you put down at the beginning of a large purchase, a large payment, to promise that the rest is coming, right? And the rest is coming in full. And so what exactly is the Lord guaranteeing then by putting his spirit in us? says that he's guaranteeing our inheritance. And what is this inheritance? Well, this inheritance is our future experience of eternal life in a glorified body and soul with Jesus in glory. That's the inheritance. And when does God say we will receive this future glory, this inheritance? Well, let's look at two passages. Philippians 1.6 says this, And I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 4.30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So God will give us our inheritance when Jesus comes back on the last day. And until that day, the Holy Spirit in us is guaranteeing us that God will finish the saving work that he started in us. And so this means that God did not seal us with a seal that can be broken 
before the day of redemption. Verse 14 clearly says that we were sealed for or until the day of redemption. So this means that our continued faith in Jesus is God's doing, not ours. And our future enjoyment of eternal glory is God's doing, not ours. Praise God for that. It's all of the grace of God. But in addition to being our guarantee of what's to come, the Holy Spirit is also God's foretaste of this future glory. Because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence, we who believe do not have to wait until that future day of redemption to experience a taste of God's joy and tastes of his freedom and taste of his power in our lives. The God that we are going to meet in glory someday is the same God who's living in us right now. And he graciously gives us delicious foretastes of our heavenly glory which is to come. Kent Hughes writes, Imagine the most sublime, most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit you've ever had. And then realize they're only a foretaste. The tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Here on earth we have only received the first dollar of an infinite amount of celestial dollars to come. Praise God. So as our guarantee, the Holy Spirit in us is both God's down payment and also God's foretaste of future glory. But what is God's end goal in all of this? What is, what is his end goal of securing our salvation for us? Why will God give us future glory? Is it, is it merely to save our souls or is something bigger going on than that? But look at the last phrase of verse 14. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. The reason why God has saved and sealed believers is for the praise of his glory. The purpose of all of this is that God would be rightfully praised. And so we respond to God's kindness to us by praising him. We respond to God's grace by telling the world how awesome he is and by, by not being ashamed of him. We respond to God's kindness by telling the world how merciful God is to everyone in Jesus Christ. God is worthy of our obedience and we want to obey him now. God is worthy of our praise and we delight to praise God. God is, is worthy of our speaking the gospel and, uh, to others, and it is a privilege to speak of his grace. God is worthy of our love and our devotion and our time and our energy and our money. The Bible says whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, wherever you are, do it all for the glory of God. Because of God's grace, we who trust in him will spend eternally, uh, eternity worshiping him. And the book of Revelation gives us this image of what that's going to look like. It says that we're going to joyfully declare with the myriads and myriads of angels, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen. Now, in light of what we've read today, let's bring it back around to where we started. How should we think about deconversion stories? Is it possible for a Christian, a believer, a true believer, to lose his or her salvation? Um, Can Christians have any true assurance of their salvation? Well, if the answer is not already clear, then let me answer that by reading a quote by John MacArthur. It's a short quote. It's only eight words, but it packs a powerful punch. MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Think about that. It's so true. If I could lose my salvation, I would. I may be a saved sinner, but that does not mean I no longer need God's grace and power to keep me saved. Are we, are we converted to Christ by God's grace alone, and then we maintain our faith by relying on our power? No, that's not good news at all. If that were true, then my hope of salvation would be no different than before I trusted in Jesus when I was working for some kind of salvation. Every part of our salvation in Christ is by God's grace through faith. Not just when you first become a Christian, but every day after that too. And think about this. In order for a Christian, a true believer, to lose his or her salvation, he or she would have to undo everything that God has already done to him or her. All the spiritual blessings that are described here in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, are linked. If you undo one, you undo them all. So according to this passage, what would a child of God have to do to become a deconverted child of God? Well... The deconverted Christian would have to unpredestine himself as God's inheritance before the foundation of the world. The deconverted Christian would have to unredeem himself, unransom himself, unremove the sins that were imputed to Jesus on the cross and for which Jesus already suffered God's wrath and died. The deconverted Christian would have to unjustify himself in the sight of God by imputing back to God the righteousness of Christ and imputing back to himself his old sinful self that Christ already put to death on the cross. The deconverted Christian would have to unreconcile himself to God. The the deconverted Christian would have to break the seal of the Holy Spirit upon himself which God put onto him to guarantee his salvation and future inheritance. So is it possible for a human to undo all these things that God in his sovereign wisdom and plan has already done to us? No. The whole reason why the Holy Spirit seals Christians when they trust in Christ is so that they won't fall away and so that they can know that God won't let them fall away. In John 10, 27 to 30, Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I know that I've read this quote before uh, from Charles Spurgeon in previous sermons, but I need to again. I've got it on my wall in my office because it just is such an encouraging quote. He says this, But remember, sinner, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Christ, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And if you do that, 10,000 devils cannot throw you down. But as long as you look at yourself, the meanest of those evil spirits may tread you beneath his feet. It is not faith. It is not our doings. It is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and on Christ alone. Now, I know that there are other texts in Scripture that seem to imply that it might be possible for a Christian to lose his or her salvation. However, when you read those in context, you'll see those passages were actually written to encourage believers that they won't lose their salvation. Those passages were written as warnings to lukewarm followers that if they call themselves Christians, but they make light of Jesus' death on the cross by continuing in sinful lifestyles that God forbids in Scripture, and if they do this with unrepentant hearts, then they have no reason to think that they're saved. Now, will a true Christian still sin? Of course. Will a true Christian still doubt from time to time? Sure. Will a true Christian be tempted by evil? Yes. But because the Holy Spirit lives inside the Christian now, and because the Holy Spirit has given the believer a new heart, remember that passage we talked about that, uh, in Ezekiel, that, that wants, this heart that wants to please the Lord? Because of that, the Christian will now not feel good about his or her sin because the Holy Spirit won't let him or her. The Christian will know that he or she is grieving the Spirit of God. The Christian cannot live a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. If the true Christian keeps living a life of sin, then he's gonna live a miserable life inside. He, he, he will be miserable because he will be grieving the spirit inside him and he will feel the spirit's grief. Now, when we encounter a person who once was deeply entrenched in the church, uh, a person who was enthralled with Jesus in the Bible and who God may have even used to disciple us in our faith, and, and then that person says he or she no longer believes in Jesus, how do we make sense of that? Well, as I say, there's only two options. One option is that that person is truly a born-again child of God, but is straying away from God for a little while. 
And we pray that the Holy Spirit inside that individual would grieve her because of her, sel- her, her, her selfish, sinful choices. We, we pray that the Holy Spirit would use that grief of the Spirit to drive her back into the arms of Jesus and back to God's people so that she'll follow Jesus again. The other option is that that person was never truly born again by God. Remember, um, you can't make yourself born again. Only God can make a person born again. Jesus talks about this in John 3 at length. Like Hebrews 6 describes, though, you know, a person may have been enthralled with Jesus and and shared in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, A person may have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, may have experienced the power of the gospel in the local church, but if the Holy Spirit never actually made that person born again through faith in the gospel then he or she was never truly a believer. And there are several examples of people like this in Scripture, including Judas Iscariot, Illumis the magician, and the crowds of people that we read uh, often followed Jesus for selfish reasons. This is the good news, though. If a person walks away from Jesus, it does not mean the Holy Spirit can't or won't still make him born again through faith in the gospel. Like Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So God can move however he wants. He can save whoever he wants, whenever, we want, whenever he wants. And so we just pray, pray, pray that he does that. All right, so with this sermon, we wrap up our seven-week study here in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It's kind of a bummer because I've loved it. Uh, I, th- I think I could squeeze a few more verses, uh, sermons out of here, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, we're going to keep moving on. But what I want us to do is remember that the whole tone of this passage, because a lot of times we read this, this passage can be used wrongly as a weapon, and I, that's missing, uh, in, in our theological discussions and arguments, that's missing the whole point of the, the whole passage. The whole passage is one of praise and thankfulness to God for the grace he has lavished on us in Jesus Christ because he loves us. So for you, I pray that the joy and peace of God would fill your heart this week as you follow the Lord and as you ponder these things and as you thank him and obey him and worship him in your life and wonder at his predestinating love, his adopting love, his redeeming love, his sanctifying love, his reconciling love, and his sealing love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you that... uh, I thank you for the people who have worked behind the scenes to make this technology available so that uh, we can be together wherever we're at. God, we just thank you for your grace. We want to praise you for your glory. Thank you for paying our debt for us. Thank you for buying us with your blood. God, I just pray that you would move in power, that your gospel would be good news to those who will hear it. 
that you would make people born again through faith in it, and that you would encourage us during these times with it. Wow. So thankful, Lord, that we're secure in you. We love you, and thank you for doing this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in today. We'll be in touch this week about what our plans are for next week. You can expect to hear from us at the end of the week. We'll give you an update. But uh, we love you. Hope you have a good day. Thanks.